I'm drinking Miller High Life. Oh, you man, put that baby in a champagne glass, I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> This episode brought to you by Miller. <laughs> I guess we have to, I want that joke in, so I have to also legally state this is not sponsored content. <laughs> this is not sponsored content as of right now. <laughs> really, if anyone wants to sponsor us with alcohol, we're happy to take that sponsor. We are, yeah, that's a win-win for us. All right, welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year, starting in 1920. Today's film is from 1927. Fritz Long's Metropolis. Well, this is take two. We tried to record this uh, about a week ago, and Adobe Audition decided that we were not recording it, actually. Yeah. This is our complete Metropolis podcast. This is the restoration <laughs> Of the original conversation that we had that is now unfortunately lost to time. That's right. So from this point forward, when we record, I will have Audition up and I will be staring at it. <laughs> like it is a child that I have to look over while I record this podcast. <laughs> so that was a little annoying, but I don't mind talking about this movie again. This is one of my favorite films. I'll go ahead and do a little bit of an intro. Uh, Arthur has actually seen Metropolis before. So for the purposes of this podcast being a film that he hasn't seen from every year in the century, I recommended the Giorgio Moroder cut of Metropolis, which he'd never seen. Kino Lorber did an excellent Blu-ray release of this film. Um, so how to how to begin? Well, really quickly, let's talk about what's going on in 1927. 1927 is a big year for film because it's the year that the jazz singer came out. This is the first talkie. It's the first film with synchronized dialogue. It's not the first film that includes synchronized sound. That award could go to a film called Don Juan, which was released by Warner Brothers. Uh, obviously, after 1927, this does not turn out to just be a gimmick. It turns out to be uh, the only way that you make films, essentially. And silent films quickly go out of style. Also in 1927, there's a huge earthquake in China. Uh, work begins on Mount Rushmore in the United States. And Germany releases a film called Metropolis. <laughs> Truly a point in history. Like, absolutely. Definitely cinematic history, yeah. Sort of a made-up origin for this film by Fritz Long himself is that he went to New York and it was for the premiere of Dini Belungen. But he claims that when he saw the New York skyline, that was when he had his inspiration for Metropolis. He's quoted as saying, The buildings seemed like a vertical curtain shimmering and weightless in an opulent stage backdrop suspended against a sinister sky in order to dazzle, divert, and hypnotize. Beautiful quote. I love that. Most likely made up. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a little too perfect. By all accounts, Fritz Long loved to embellish stories about himself. And it most likely that quote was fabricated by him after the trip. And then he said, that's what I said when I saw the Woolworth Tower. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it was Ufa's most expensive film, Ufa's UFA, which is a German silent production company. This film contained 36,000 extras, 200,000 costumes, and 670-story skyscrapers between miniatures and actual buildings built for sets. This budget was supposed to be 800,000 Reichmarks, but by the end it had jumped to 5 million Reichmarks. So Reichmarks were a German currency that now no longer exists, uh, but at the time, one Reichmark was worth 2.5 U.S. dollars. So if we adjust Reichmarks to U.S. dollars at the time, it was a $62.5 million film in 1927. And then if we adjust that for inflation, this number is insane. Today, this film would cost $933,613,505. It's 
absolutely massive budget. Its box office in Germany was 75,000 Reichsmarks, uh, which again, when adjusted for US dollars at the time, was $187,500. And if we adjust that for inflation, it was $2.9 million. So $2.9 million on a $933 million film. This was a huge uh, financial disappointment. I got my calculator right here, and I can confirm that all those numbers are correct. Yes, <laughs> I did. I did my research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 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 doesn't surprise me. There's something I don't know. There's something about this film that doesn't scream. I don't know. It's it's not a fun film to watch uh, on a Friday evening. Do you really not think so? Hmm. I don't think so. Oh, it's, it's pretty dark. I guess am I just so desensitized to tone and themes that I that I just I find this wildly entertaining. I I mean I really love it. Yeah, but it's not The Thief of Baghdad with the swashbuckling silliness. I guess not, but I find this I Thief of Baghdad I fully had to brew coffee in the middle of this <laughs> this movie. The first time I saw this film it was the 2001 cut. We're going to talk more about the cuts later. And I just immediately fell head over heels for it. I thought it was ex- I thought it was just exquisite. Yeah, and I and I showed this film, the Giorgio Moroder cut specifically. I showed to my roommates, and I was really shocked at just how invested everybody got in it while we were watching it. Um, yeah, I find this film to be really entertaining. Uh, I don't know. It reminds me of Blade Runner. I love Blade Runner. Uh, it reminds me of Blade Runner for a lot of reasons, but yeah the way that that's not considered a financial success, but it's still a really fantastic and entertaining movie for myself. But I I can understand why the general public is a little wary of these strange science fiction films. You know, Arthur, there's actually a building in Blade Runner that's based off of a sketch that was made for Metropolis. I I did know that because I think you told it to me last. <laughs> I I know that I I was gonna say did you know and then I realized of course he does. I told him that last week. <laughs> <laughs> I know we can't do the usual thing like did you know this and oh that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've already given up all of my all of my good stuff for this. Uh, but to Arthur, not to you, my loving public. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell the loving public what uh, this film is about? What is the broad plot of what's going on in this movie? So this film is about Frieder. He is the son of the uh, upper echelon leader, Jean Friedersen, who lives in the aptly titled New Tower of Babel. For this metropolis to exist that they live in, there is a working class that lives miles underneath the city. Through a series of coincidences, Frieder ends up in the worker city under the town, sees the conditions they have to live with, ends up taking over for one of the employees there, and finds Maria, who is trying to lead a new era of peace by finding a mediator between the working class and the upper class, of which Frieder deigns himself to be. Maria is kidnapped and turned into a robot to be used by the upper echelon. And the scientist who does this to her is doing this all out of jealousy. The real Maria is able to come in, but is unable to stop the destruction of the machines that the robot Maria has already started. The town revolts. People go crazy. Things go really manic for a second. They all end up on the roof of a building and then Frieder saves Maria, and it's a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good? Yeah, people should watch the film, though. <laughs> I feel like that one was even more long-winded than my last one was. And I feel like my last one was kind of long-winded. <laughs> There's a lot going on. There's a lot of, you know, Frieder goes down and switches places, and he sees Maria before that, and then he finds her again in the cave, and... She's preaching. Well, if you wanted me to give a scene-by-scene story, <laughs> that would have been easier for me, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's, quite a, there's a little bit going on in the film. Well, I think this is as good of a time as any to talk about this film's journey. This film was released in January 1927 in Germany. Interestingly enough, it was actually given to American producers before that. So even before it was released in Germany, 
uh, American producers had already seen it. And the first thing they said when it was over was that it needed to be trimmed down. This film was two and a half hours long. And they cut it down to an hour and 45 minutes. And why did they do that? Um, it was mainly concerned that people would not be entertained by something that was so out there. Sci-fi truly wasn't like a huge genre in popular cinema just yet. And they thought that it was too long to keep people's interest. Were they trying to fit in more screenings per, per day and just like that kind of thing? I'm not entirely sure about that, if I'm being honest. I've heard that excuse made for modern films, but I don't, I don't know if that's true uh, during this era. So this film was released in January of 1927 in Germany, and it played in its original cut for, I think it was two months. During those two months, Manuel Pena Rodriguez, our hero, uh, saw it and requested a copy of the film print and got one and took it back to his home in Buenos Aires. Then it was brought to Argentina, and that was cut as well. It was pretty much cut everywhere. Manuel Pena Rodriguez ended up having over a hundred silent film nitrates that were in very good condition. Well, they were they were in good condition for being original nitrates. It was dedicated to some random museum. I'm not entirely sure what the name of that museum is, but they didn't know how to keep film nitrate and were told that it was very dangerous to have large quantities of it in a building that doesn't have the necessary resources to care for it as it can burn your whole building down. So they did a shoddy, quick pan and scan to 16 millimeter because they didn't even have 35 millimeter. They didn't have the money to have 35 millimeter to transfer to. So they transferred all these nitrates to 16 millimeter and chopped off the top half of the literal frames to make it fit in some cases. Oh, okay. That makes sense. This canister lived in this museum for a long, long time. And then Fernando Pena, who was a man who had known about Manuel Rodriguez's collection and had been told by him, uh, I think that I have a full copy of Metropolis. Finally got the chance to go in because his ex-girlfriend, I guess, is actually the leader of Museo de Cine. They took all the 16 millimeter film. Uh, once the other museum closed down, they went in together, watched it. Kino Lorber and well, they they put out that they had this cut. Kino Lorber was able to find it and using elements from the 2001 restoration, which is taken from the nitrate print in the National Film Archive and splicing in scenes from this 16 millimeter reel, uh, doing mi minor restoration work to it, whatever could be done for it. They were able to create this definitive cut that we now have. And that was released when? That was released in 2010. And wasn't there a projectionist or am I mixing up another story? Wasn't there a projectionist who was like, yeah, I, I couldn't sit through this film. And they're like, wait a minute. Yes. The way that Museo del Cine realized that this was the Manuel uh, Peña Rodriguez film cut, the one that was allegedly complete, was there was an employee who talked about screening this film nitrate in 1959 and told them that he was exhausted by it because he had to hold down the film by hand for two and a half hours straight. And people thought that was strange because the Giorgio Moroder cut had just been released and it was only 90 minutes long. So there was a very long involved process. I didn't even talk about the Giorgio Moroder cut, huh? No, but that's uh, that's a whole other story, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to further complicate things, but also it just adds to this film's incredible legacy. In the middle of all of this, interest was sort of lost in Metropolis for a little while just because it was so hard to find good film prints of it, and it was hard to find complete versions of it. And there was a silent film theater in California that would put on these authentic film reels, and they put on Metropolis, Giorgio Moroder got to see it and ended up requesting from the theater owner that he could have the film reels to make his own edit of, which he put together, put color tinting over, and added an 80s music track to, which he composed. And just so, for, for the people who don't know, who is Giorgio Moroder? 
Uh, Georgia Murder is a famous electronic music DJ uh, who's been around for a very long time. A huge inspiration to modern electronic music as well. So he wasn't even a film preservationist or even known. He wasn't known for being a film enthusiast even. But he uh, saw this film and just got inspiration for this project, which was based more around the music. And that version is without a doubt the reason we today have the complete cut, because it caused a huge resurgence of interest and popularity around Metropolis. This film is also interesting because, and this is something that we actually only learned when people started to restore the film. People were noticing that between different countries' edits, not only were certain scenes missing or not missing, some scenes had completely different performances in them. They had the same actors, same shot, but they look slightly different. Their face moved a different way. They do different things with their hands. Fritz Long filmed every single shot three different times so that he would have backup and safety footage. And strangely enough, different shots ended up in different edits. Do we know why? No. I I, I don't know why. And everything I've watched on it, no one can really explain why there are different cuts that have different literal footage in them. Because that's a step further than just removing a reel or two, which is how most of the international cuts are described. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's wild. Are there any other films that you can think of that have been lost to time that weren't as lucky as Metropolis that maybe were just as grand or epic, but are sort of like these white whales that have gone missing from that time period? I can't think of any off the top of my head. They absolutely exist. I mean, it used to be common practice all around the world to destroy nitrate film once it wasn't being shown anymore. So, uh, simply because it was so dangerous to keep around, it was very easy to destroy it. There, They definitely exist. I can't give you one right off the top of my head. I would love to say something like Greed, which I believe um, I, I've talked about before, but I can't quite remember. Yeah, you might talk about it in the future, actually. Okay, so there is a future episode where I discuss Greed a little more in depth, uh, but that film was a 10-hour magnum opus, which was pared down significantly uh, by producers and studios. I have seen a four-hour cut of it, which even that is considered extremely rare, but that is a huge film. I, but I can't think of any others right off the top of my head. Um, so I just looked up other famous lost silent films that have not been discovered Mm -hmm. that have been lost to time at the top of the list is a film called the mountain eagle this is alfred hitchcock's second film from 1927 same year that we're in now and according to people who saw it at the time it is far superior to his first film the lodger another film from 1928 the patriot was nominated for five oscars and it won the best writing award It was the only silent film nominated for Best Picture in 1928, but it has been lost to time. Hmm. And there's others. I mean, there's there's hundreds, probably thousands of films that we'll never be able to see. Um, But there certainly are some that uh, would be very interesting to rediscover and be able to watch. But yeah, we're very lucky that Metropolis has been uh, salvaged. Um, I guess now we should switch it up just a little bit. I've been talking so much. (laughs) What were... You had seen the 2010 complete cut before. Yeah, I watched the 2010 cut last year, and that was the first time that I ever saw Metropolis. What were your thoughts on the Giorgio Moroder cut? So when you recommended to watch the Giorgio Moroder cut, I assumed that it was going to be radically different. Um, I know that there's a tendency when foreign films are adapted and reinterpreted for international audiences to really rearrange things and reinterpret things. My mind immediately goes to, of course, the first Godzilla film, because I love Godzilla. And there were literally new scenes with Raymond Burr that were filmed and intercut into the original Japanese footage. And it's like this whole different storyline. I didn't expect anything quite that radical for this cut, but... I didn't think that the spirit of the film was lost in Georgia Moroder's reinterpretation. It's much shorter, but I think that its pacing is actually a little bit more manageable. 
mm-hmm. 90 minutes versus two and a half hours for this kind of story, which is a pretty uh, allegorical archetypal story. It's it still works really well in 90 minutes. I thought that the recoloring was fantastic. One of my favorite shots in the Marauder cut is without a doubt when Robot Maria opens her eyes and there's the just beautiful, striking blue eyes. Yeah, so good. Fantastic shot compared to the original, which is still an amazing shot. You know, it's well lit. There's a great build up to it with Maria uh, fading away and the robot kind of taking over her soul. But yeah, this this recoloring was truly striking. I pr- I do personally prefer the 2010 cut. That is like the film preservationist geek inside of me. I I think the Metropolis is a great starting point for someone who wants to get into silent film. But I do think the complete cut is asking a lot of not just because of its length, but because there are so many sections of it that still look extremely shoddy. Mm-hmm. There was just nothing to be done for that 16 millimeter uh, film print. Once they did that, it pretty much uh, forced the film to look like that for eternity. So it, uh, it is it is asking a lot of an audience member, especially someone who isn't as familiar with silent film and doesn't understand the magnificent history of this film to uh, to watch that. But the Marauder cut, it every time I show it to people, it blows them away, especially if they've never watched silent film before. I mean, it just really sparks their interest. I think I preferred the Marauder cut myself. It's pretty hard to say that one's better than the other. It really does come down to personal preference. And like you said, you prefer the 2010 cut because it is closer to the original, um, which is great. Um, but I do like the pacing of the 90 minute version a little bit better. The one thing I didn't prefer was the soundtrack. <laughs> Jojo Moroder's score is <laughs> great 1980s soundtrack. Uh, just doesn't fit with the aesthetic for me. You really don't think so? Well, th- there's the cool like science fiction element. It fits, but it does. I feel like Gottfried Hooperts, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, Gottfried Hooper's original score from Metropolis has this grand, epic quality. Mm. It, it comes down to personal preference again, but I just love the cinematic score from the original version of Metropolis. And that opening like minute that introduces the film is just iconic. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely prefer the orchestrations, but I do like that Marauder music. I think it's so good. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's, it's a jam. It's it, it's good, but it is weird watching a film that is antiquated and old Metropolis, you know, old silent film. And then also this out of date score, this uh, crazy electronic 1980s uh, music. It's uh, it's just kind of interesting. It, it, it's it's a experiment in its own right. It is funny that the Moroder cut is sort of like multiply antiquated. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like on top of watching a film made in the twenties, you're listening to music that electronic music would end up going so much further than that, you know. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I I still don't mind it. I think that it does sort of make it feel like this time capsule. Um, I think the music for the original Metropolis is actually completely timeless. I think it's gorgeous music. I know. It reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, a John Williams score. And I'm sure it's because John Williams and Gottfried Hooperts are referencing the same sort of music from Gustav Holtz, like with the planets and stuff, suites like that. Now, I, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, actually revisited the 2010 cut myself. Do And I haven't watched that Georgia Moroder cut in a few months. Is the Tower of Babel fable in the Georgia Moroder cut? Yes, yes it is. God, that scene is incredible. Yeah. One of the best scenes I've seen in any silent film. It's its own little fairy tale, yeah. The shot of the man with the plan standing at the top of the staircase and lifting up one arm as all of the workers surge towards him. Uh, such an incredible image. Which is then, of course, mirrored with Maria raising up her hand as she's dancing and all of the rich men come 
uh, charging up the stairs. Oh, I didn't even realize that parallel, but that's great. Oh, yeah. The the film has a lot of parallels because, I mean, the whole thing is like, you know, this this is the literal new Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole thing is supposed to be a parallel. But, yeah, it ends up actually happening within the third act of the film. Now, this film keeps referencing this allegory of the mind needing to communicate with the hands through the heart. Yeah, the mediator between the hand and the head must be the heart. Taya von Harbo <laughs> wrote that. She was Fritz Long's wife at the time. She was known for writing all of his scripts. She actually wrote a full novelization of this after he came up with the concept. It should also be stated that Taya von Harbo is a full-on Nazi. She was very passionate about the party and actually saw this and future endeavors as an opportunity to start working for the Nazi party, which is why The Testament of Dr. Mabuse is so interesting because that film is sort of an anti-Nazi parallel. And is that also directed by Fritz Long? Fritz Long, yes, and written by Taya von Harpo. So what's the relationship between him and his wife if she's trying to get in good with the Nazis and he's clearly not? So at first he was pretty neutral. But once things started to lean very clearly into fascism, you know, I mean, we hear the word Nazi now and it has just so much weight behind it that we immediately associate with all these things. But there was a long period of time in Germany where Nazi was just the name of a party. It was just the name of a political party. And so for him, it was, uh, even though they were still considered a little bit extremist, they weren't anywhere close to becoming any sort of world power or anything for a long time. So he was mostly neutral on it. And then once things started to rise there and there started to be a huge wave of anti-Semitism within it, he really became uncomfortable with it. And his wife more or less tried to sell him out on that. And he ended up fleeing to the States and making films in the States. Was Fritz Long uh, Jewish? I don't believe so. I thought I read somewhere that he was. Uh, He was raised Catholic, but his mother was born Jewish. She converted to Catholicism before he was even born. I didn't even know that about his mother, actually. I did not know that. How insane is it a film directed by someone who would go on to become anti-Nazi before Nazism had really taken hold, and he directs this film in which, in the first 10 minutes, you see people who have been shaved and are in uniforms and in a vision he has get thrown into a literal gas chamber. It is so dark and it's so foreboding. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy to think that somebody who wasn't even like politically aligned with that was already sort of seeing that as a potential future for his country. Yeah. There's no way to tell whether, you know, that was something that he saw coming from the Nazi party specifically at this time in his career. But it's just crazy to me that a German film from 1927 depicts such a stark, haunting image. And allegedly, people being brought into Auschwitz said that they were reminded of the like the ramp into into the camp reminded them of that scene. <sighs> yeah, just thinking about that, the Moloch scene, it's such an insane way to open up a film. I mean... Yeah, and I mean, if you've been paying attention to the little, the mini history lessons we've been doing at the beginning of every podcast, Germany's not in a great place right now, post-Great War. So everything, uh, this feels very natural. When I watched this for the first time, I took it as a allegory for communism. Isn't that interesting? We kind of briefly discussed during Battleship Potemkin, it felt like it had more universal themes than communism. Right. But this film... (laughs) I mean, this is literally about a worker rebellion against an upper class. And the upper class is not like kings or emperors. It's uh, plutocrats. They're all industrialists. But it is interesting that even from the protagonist's perspective, the uprising is a negative thing. Yes. It's misguided. Yeah, it's something that's incited by uh, evil Maria, robot Maria. It's true. That And that's kind of where the, it's saying the mediator between the hand and the head must be the heart is about sort of fascism. It's pretty much saying like, hey, you know, like there are these people who have these grand ideas and want to lead the world. 
And there are these people who need to help do that by being the workers who put together these projects. But just remember, we're all human, so we all have to find our hearts, <laughs> which is... <laughs> you watch this, you don't think, man, this is clearly a Nazi allegory. That's true. It seems so much more simple than that. It seems so much more like just a basic fable, like be nice to other people and the the don't exploit people for their their work. Yeah. It it feels way more simple and like a lot of platitudes. Did not think this was a Nazi allegory, but good to know. Yeah. Uh and I mean, you know, again, like a lot of people don't view it that way. I think it's fair not to view it that way, but I also think it is very important to note that when this film was screened for Russian censors, they immediately said this could not play in Russia. They found its political allegories offensive. Okay. Whether or not, and I would, and I definitely am agreeing with you that I see a lot of communist themes and I feel a lot of that in the film, but the literal communists at the time <laughs> did not feel that way. It's definitely coming from that the upper class is the bad guys. Uh, you know, they're clearly evil and taking advantage of the lower class. But yes, the riot itself is not uh, viewed in a in a good light. Hmm. And a lot of the apocalyptic language that I remember from inner titles and dialogue, that's all missing in the Georgia Marauder cut. The film that I remember that I watched last year had a lot more biblical and sort of end of the world language. Oh, yeah. It literally quotes the Bible in Revelations. The whore of Babylon will be this woman like dancing on the seven headed dragon. And so it shows like an archaic drawing of that passage from Revelation mm. and then cuts to Maria dancing on top of this seven headed dragon statue is incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot more religious allegory and religious text and reference in the 2010 cut than was even in the 2001 cut. And that whole dance that Maria's doing um where she's seducing these members of the upper class, she's so beautiful that one of them kills themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a crazy scene, and especially in 1927, I just I didn't even imagine that anyone was putting anything like that on film. And I think it just speaks to the uh, the sexual norms in America versus Europe. Yeah. I mean, when we watch The Thief of Baghdad, there's seduction there, but it's done in such a different way than the seduction we see in Metropolis. Uh, American seduction and what we see in Hollywood is all grandeur and there's lust, but it's displayed through wealth and status um, and clothing Versus here where it's very um, sensual and focused on her body. And it's such a distressing sequence, too, because it's, you know, this woman who's become the leader of the workers underneath the ground and like kind of has been trying to give them hope. And like once they have control of her, the first thing they do is make her into a pretty much a stripper for the upper echelon. It's, yeah, it's a tragic scene, really. Yeah, it's so tragic. And uh, a lot of the nudity was cut from the American version as well. The upper garden, mm -hmm. where you see a bunch of scantily clad women. They're all wearing sheer fabric, but you can see their nipples through it and everything. That was all gone. And uh, yeah, a lot of Maria's dance was gone too, especially the shot of her uh, lifting up the dress to show her leg, which I actually think that shot's not in the Giorgio Moroder cut of her like showing the slit in her dress. Mm, I wouldn't know. I think I was distracted in the Marauder cut by the pretty cool music going on in that scene. <laughs> Did you actually think it was pretty cool? <laughs> the original score, I think, captures the tragedy of that scene a little bit better. The horror and the... Yeah. The Marauder cut is kind of playing into the the cool, slick stripper elements, I think. I can understand that perspective on the film because he's not really trying to tell a story at all with his cut. It really is just like, these are some cool images and I want to make some cool music with it. And if that's the case, then it still speaks to the film's strength that the story still comes across really well in his cut. Yeah, absolutely. Just watching the Giorgio Moroder cut kind of made me realize that a lot of the films we've watched so far have been reinterpretations of their original Source. And I mean, I knew that deep down, I know mm -hmm. that, but 
this one kind of takes it to an extreme that makes you realize that things like the score and things like certain scenes, um, they play a big role in how we experience the film. And even just sitting in a theater at the time and watching it with like an orchestra would have been so different from, you know, streaming it on Criterion Channel. It's a completely different experience. God, imagining imagining watching a live orchestra play this score just mm-hmm. sends shivers down my spine even oh, thinking yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. I would kill for that experience. So you talked a little bit about UFA. It is UFA, right? Who backed this film? And you know what's funny is that even the people who are German call it UFA. I, no one ever says UFA. Everyone says UFA. So it is short. It, I'm going to mess this up. I have to butcher something in every podcast we do. <laughs> so UFA stands for Universum Film Acting Gesellschaft. Gesellschaft? Gesellschaft. Okay. But no one ever says UFA. Everyone says UFA. So UFA produced the film. They were pretty much only around during the silent era. Mm. And as I've already mentioned, the financial loss of this film was so huge. Uh, one of the biggest flops of all time, actually. When adjusted for inflation. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. So that wasn't great for UFA. That's so sad because this film is considered like the beginning of sci-fi and cinema. I mean, obviously there's been other firsts. There's like the trip to the moon from Georges Méliès. But the influences that this has, you can kind of feel ripple throughout the genre for the rest of uh, the century with things like obviously Blade Runner but then even Star Wars, you can kind of see the design of C-3PO looking like the robot in this film. Um, Tim Burton's Batman, I always bring that one up. Yeah, that, the city. It it's literally looks like Metropolis. It's so fun. Unlike with um, The Thief of Baghdad, which was another film we watched that had a pretty lavish production design and crazy sets and everything. Um, it doesn't look like there was any art director that was really in charge of the look of this film. There's three people credited for the production design. And I get the feeling that Fritz Long was actually the person who was really in charge of the look of everything. Yeah. Uh, he had a history as an architect, so it just makes sense that he had a lot of influence on the way that the city and the sets and uh, the props and everything. This film was also the beginning of the Schuftan process. Uh, which was invented by Eugene Schuftan for this film. It's a mirror process, and there's a miniature set, and it's reflected into the lens at the same time as characters are in the foreground and they're being filmed. So that's how they're able to have cars and people moving while there are these huge... It looks like they're mats, but they're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. That's how that was achieved. That's cool. Yeah, really impressive stuff. Is this considered a German expressionist film? Yes. Okay. Yes. With the with the lighting and the set design, absolutely. I mean, we we didn't watch uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which came out in 1920. Um, and I haven't seen that film, but I've seen shots from it. That looks a little bit more stylized than something like this. I don't know, man. I mean, I think this movie looks really stylized. Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> I, I think I get what you're saying. Like, they're... I, but I really do think it comes down to budgets. I think if Cabinet of Dr. Caligari could have built all of its sets to reflect the stuff and to create its own shadows, it would have done exactly what Metropolis does. Okay, that makes sense. Though. But Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, so much of it was just them, like, putting up pieces of cardboard and, like, putting in random pieces of foil in places to reflect in certain ways. And that's how they created all, like, the crazy stark lines and... um and it made these like super small sets, like seriously, just one staircase. It looks like it's this huge, never ending staircase. Whereas this looks a little bit more extraordinary. If you see a huge staircase in Metropolis, there's a huge staircase there. Right. <laughs> I, I don't feel like I've explored the genre of German expressionism very much, mm. um, but I've seen its influence. I feel like A Page of Madness feels like a German expressionist film in my mind. Yeah, isn't that crazy? There's a lot of influence from this genre kind of moving through the world, but I haven't seen a lot of quote-unquote German Expressionist films myself. Well, it's interesting because it is called German Expressionism, and I think that's a deserved title because it did originate in that country. But it also just does feel like the natural 
next stage in film. Mm-hmm. When it was first getting started, it really was people just shooting straight forward and all the lighting was completely economical. It was just to make sure you could see the image. Because for a while, that's all people were impressed by. It was just the fact that you could see an image. That you could watch these people coming out of a factory. That you could watch this train coming right at you. And so German Expressionism means just taking lighting and realizing that the way you light an image and light a film will reflect its themes and reflect its tone. It just feels like a natural progression for cinema. So it is German Expressionism, but yeah, the wave immediately rippled through the world because everyone realized, oh, right, that makes complete sense. Right. Um, have you seen other... You've seen other Fritz Lang films. Yes, uh, I've seen many, actually. Uh, I already mentioned Dini Belungen. That film is insane. It's four and a half hour silent film. M. M is great. That's another... That's one that I have actually seen, and I really liked that. That that gave me some anxiety towards the end. The plot and what's going on in that film just kind of goes off the rails, and you start to really question your own morality and all this. It's a really good film. I recommend M. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to open that whole can of worms in this podcast, but that film is so incredible for its themes. I mean, even just having a film that focuses on a child murderer and it's not really, it, there's no implication or anything. It's 100% what's happening in the film mm-hmm. feels so gutsy to even approach and then to have him be your main character and then to give him a sympathetic speech it's just like insane a great little it's not an actual fritz long film but a great little fritz long project uh there's a jean-luc godard film called contempt and it's about a film being made it's a huge satire of the filmmaking industry it's really funny but Fritz Long is the director of the film within the film, mm. and he plays himself. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And it's hilarious. It's like this eccentric character. He's got his eye patch. Okay, yeah. So I looked up a picture of Fritz Long, and he had an eye patch. Did he always just have that thing on like he was this crazy pirate on set? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I don't know when the eye patch began. There are pictures of him without it, are there not? I mean, you got to have a look. It's a good look. He was considered such an eccentric. Hilariously, he was considered a dictator on set. Isn't that ironic? This film seems to be so, like, anti-authoritarian. And then, of course, he's running his sets like some madman. There are some pictures and there's some footage of uh, backstage. It's very, very minimal. But, yeah, this shoot was exhaustive. I mean, there's the whole third act scene where the set is being flooded and... You see all these extras like climbing up and trying to like save themselves and uh, it looks harrowing. This set is interesting too because people would visit it because it was so huge. Um, Alfred Hitchcock is said to allegedly have visited it and our friend from the previous episode, Sergei Eisenstein, visited this set. Fritz Long did, had not seen Battleship Potemkin yet and had just been sold. Sergei Eisenstein was an up-and-coming director. So he told him, you watch how I direct a film and then you'll be able to do it yourself. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) He told that to Sergei Eisenstein. It's just so funny. He's so cocky. (laughs) And I can see these two. Sergei Eisenstein looks like a nut as well. He's got his like crazy hair and everything. And then Fritz Long with his eye patch. That's got to be good. Yeah. It's a a funny scene to consider. (laughs) So we we need to talk about how much you love this film and how you wrote a paper on it. When I was a freshman in college, I think everyone kind of goes through a phase where their interests sort of wane. And so I was a freshman in college and stopped collecting film, kind of started looking more into other aspects of my life, started looking into potential journalism. And I fell off the bandwagon with film collecting for a couple of years. And I was just in Barnes & Noble And all of a sudden saw a Blu-ray that said The Complete Metropolis. And I thought, what What does that mean? So I immediately bought it right then because I was such a huge fan of the film. And I knew already uh, so much of the history behind it, especially as far as the cuts and everything are concerned. It just blew me away. 
I had to do a research paper for a class I was in that year. And it was over the course of a year, you had to research a subject and write about it to compare it to its Wikipedia article. It was a very long involved uh, thing, but you could choose any subject you wanted. And so I decided to choose Fritz Long's Metropolis, wrote a whole paper about the history of the film being lost to time and then found again. I I was obsessed with this film. I, I got to a point where I was just watching it in the background while I was writing the paper because it was like, a, because it was so exhaustive for mm-hmm. me that like, <laughs> I was like, if I just look up and see this film, it literally will remind me why I'm doing this right. and what I'm passionate about. I don't want to be called the expert on this film. Uh, there are so many people who know so much more about it than I do. Should we talk about someone who doesn't like this film? Ooh. Our friend H.G. Wells. Oh. I sent you a link to the uh, review I found from H.G. Wells where he calls this uh, the most silly film. The silliest film. I have recently seen the silliest film. I do not believe it would be possible to make one sillier. <laughs> <laughs> now, I gotta say, I like H.G. Wells quite a bit. I I really like War of the Worlds. I've read The Time Machine. I like a lot of his work. It's influenced my love for sci-fi, too. Uh, but this is a pretty scathing review, and I don't think it's very fair. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah, this review is hysterical. It's so weird, because I feel like he is coming for it, mainly because he sees it as such a pessimistic view of the working class and the future. Yeah, and he's such an optimist. Uh, at this time, H.G. Wells is a self-described socialist, and he thinks that new inventions and machinery and industrialization will lead to a sort of golden age for humanity in the future. So this seems like a attack on his personal worldview, and he really doesn't take well to it. I'm trying to find the quote that I did last time. I thought it was so sad. Okay, I, the quote that stuck out to me in this review is, what this film anticipates is not unemployment, but drudge employment, right. which is precisely what is passing away. The filmmakers have not even realized that the machine ousts the drudge. And he's specifically referring to the sort of Gilded Age factory work life where people were still needed to man all of these machines. And he thinks that drudge work is a thing of the past, that it's all fading away and that we'll have luxury and leisure in the future. Unanimously, we'll have luxury and leisure. Yeah, yeah. Across all working class, yeah. And of course, now we know that to be absolutely false. In fact, with the influx of technology, you know, we've created a literal plastic ocean in China, the Black River, the air quality in Beijing. It's just proven that, you know, the creation of machines definitely does alter convenience for some, but ends up creating huge problems in the world. I'm not trying to put myself on a high horse or anything, but... Yeah, I think he's specifically referring to just the menial tasks that he sees workers in this film having to perform. He keeps saying, like, oh, what kind of, what are they, why are they doing that? Why, why is this being portrayed this way? Yeah, drudge work seems like it's, it, it is just work. You could talk to anyone and be like, is your work drudge? Yes, it's drudge. Yeah, talk to anyone who works at a call center. It's like... That's definitely drudge employment. <laughs> I mean, even working as a food service worker is, you know, like absolute drudge employment. And especially the people who are literally working on assembly lines for machinery. That is drudge employment. Mm-hmm. And that's his whole thing is that machinery is going to get rid of all of that. But that'll also create more unemployment. There is so much to get into here. He actually does talk about the unemployment problem in this review. He just thinks that it's uh, a temporary state before, you know, he's a socialist, before uh, the world passes into the sort of utopian ideal that uh, he believes it will. Hmm. Anyways, this review also mentions the German origins of this film quite a few times and how unimpressed he is with what the German film industry is putting out. And I can't help but think that as a British author at the time, 
he is still harboring resentment towards Germany after the First World War. Yeah, definitely some international bias going on in this review. And, you know, this is H.G. Wells writing at a certain point in his life. I'd be very curious to know if his thoughts on Metropolis shifted as the world changed. Um, I know that he passes away uh, around the time of World War II, and a lot of his hopes and dreams about what technology and science would do for the world uh, must have changed by then. So I'd be curious if his thoughts on Metropolis also changed. It's just so funny to even imagine. I can't imagine a sillier film than than uh, Metropolis. What do you think he would think of uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwreck? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good one? Can yeah, we keep that great. one? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the third one? That's the third one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've seen, I've shown this to so many people over the years, and every single time the reaction is just so positive. People can't believe a film. Like, when people think of silent film, they have this very specific idea in their head of something being, like, very slow and very difficult to process. But this film, you know, regardless of Arthur's opinion, (laughs) even the two and a half hour cut truly is like so quickly paced. There's not a single wasted scene or moment. When you think about the ground this movie covers in its first like 15, 20 minutes. I need to defend myself then. I do still like the 2010 (laughs) two and a half hour cut. It is still a fantastic film. (laughs) Especially compared to something of similar length like The Thief of Baghdad, which has uh, no right to be that long. Right. The length on Metropolis is perfectly fine. It's perfectly acceptable. I just like the pacing. I don't it's personal preference. Give me, yeah. This is this is like a main film that when someone says they haven't seen a silent film, this is the one I go to as far as recommending one. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah, it's just gorgeous cinema. It is really funny to think about like this I'm I'm happy with this recording and I'm happy with <laughs> it is just funny to think that just like Metropolis there really are like moments jokes certain things that I pulled for sure that like are not here and are lost they're lost to time <laughs> it's just funny to think about so let's talk about what we're quote unquote watching next week so next week we will be doing a double feature of Walt Disney's Steamboat Willie and King Vidor's The Crowd. Which we have already recorded as of recording this episode, but hopefully you're listening to them in the right order. So I'll have in the show notes where you can find Steamboat Willie, and The Crowd is a lot harder to find, but uh, you can still do some digging, and it is still out there. It is not a lost film. All right, that's it. I'm cutting us off. All right, let's cut it. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Nathan Royal for making our show's music. If you're enjoying A Century in Cinema, we would love if you took a second to help support the show. You can do that by subscribing, giving us those ratings so that we can get those internet algorithms, and to recommend us to someone else who likes movies and someone else who's looking for a new podcast. Thanks a lot, and we will have a new episode next week. 